Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. And we are now at the end of All the Pretty Horses. This is the- It's uh, sad. I know. It it's very sad. is sad. So I was wondering, how do you think the audience would feel if we just turned Close Reads into an All the Pretty Horses podcast? All the, all pretty, the horses pretty horses all the time. McCarthy. All the pretty horses all the time. Yeah. That's what we should name our new spinoff podcast. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. We'd have like three listeners. They would A-T-P-H-A-T-T. love it. A-T-P-H-A-T-T. Mm. At foot up. That <laughs> is going to get legs. Yeah, definitely. It's going to get legs. Definitely. Hashtag. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're here to discuss the, the end of the end TikTok. Of the and then... <laughs> Tim, the whole show, Heidi and I should have a conversation and Tim just goes off <laughs> And I'm just naming in the back. I'm naming social, social media, media platforms. Social platforms. Just like words related to social media. Check mark. <laughs> um, so, so we're here to discuss the end. And then next week, of course, we will um, answer your questions. So I'm sure you uh, have plenty of questions. I've been getting some e- from email already. If you want to submit questions, you can submit them on the Facebook page, of course. But if you are one of those people who is not on Facebook, then you can email them to me and it's david at goldberrybooks.com. So we will dive into all of your questions and thoughts next week. To this week, we're going to probably have to talk some more about why this is a hard book for Tim, why I love this book, where Heidi stands after another reading of it, all those sorts of things. Before we get into the show, though, I feel like we should do a little... Like what else is going on in our podcasting world at the beginning of the show? Because normally we do that at the end. And this week, I just thought we'd break tradition because there was a special episode of The Plays the Thing very recently. I think it went up last the end of last week. Yeah. Tim, what is this very special episode of The Plays the Thing? It is... Let me give you the background for why I wanted to do it. I think my brother and sister are two of the funniest people in the world. Unfortunately, they lack exposure. A lot of people don't know just how funny they are. So I was like, you know what? You just we got like them. this little break between the time that the, the, pod, the Hamlet podcasts are released. I just need to figure out how to get Carissa and Scott on the air. And maybe I can get my mom on the air. And around about that time, I was snooping around in my mom's office and I found these <laughs> old classic comic books that we, that our family used to read when we were kids. And one of them was Hamlet and one of them was Romeo and Juliet. So I got a PDF of Hamlet made and I sent it to my brother and sister by email. And I said, don't open this until we're on the show. I'm going to turn the mics on for you guys. And I'm, we're just going to go down memory lane. (laughs) So that's what the podcast was. It was, it was just an attempt to kind of get Carissa and Scott and my mom in the air and we were recording it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. It's so fun. And no one is going to listen to this thing because it's just us like trumping up family jokes from 25 years ago. But apparently people enjoy it. But it's, it's out there in the world and you can listen to it wherever you get podcasts by subscribing and checking into that feed for the place of thing. Thank you, David. And then after that, we've got Hamlet, right? Hamlet, I think, should be dropping any day now. Maybe yep. tomorrow. I 
Uh, well, to, we're recording on Thursday. This episode will go up on Friday. So by the time people have access to this episode on All the Pretty Horses, they should have access to the Hamlet Act 1 episode. Beautiful. So, uh, Heidi, what's going on in your world yes, right now? David. <laughs> well, yes, we, David. Uh, yes. <laughs> in, in my world, Lucy and I are planting carrots today. We harvested some zucchini and some basil. And what else is going on? Also, we have the conference, the Circe National Conference coming up next week with great excitement and preparation. I am sure all of our people around the world are already planning their outfits, which is a big deal when you go to the Circe <laughs> National Conference. Um, and I have been working on that. I've been working on my talks for that, recording the daily poem, recording the plays, the thing, talking a lot about Hamlet lately. Yep. thinking about yep. the meaning of life and um and so then just, i'm reading not, this not a little book called all the pretty horses by this guy named cormac mccarthy yeah at the risk and of ruining your wondering about the meaning of life <laughs> so go on at the risk of ruining that excellent segue I'm reading a book called all the pretty horses like that's a great opportunity that for was almost like heidi was in. saying let's get on with it right i'm going to interrupt this even further um heidi how finalized are your wardrobe decisions for the conference? Are you well, a halfway question. there? More? I would say about halfway there. Um, <laughs> my question as a follow-up is, I mean, do you guys think about this? This is a real question. Like, do you guys think about what they're going to wear to something or not really? I David. Do. Yeah. I, I just came back from going to the dry cleaners. Right. Did you realize yes. I had to get, I have to get stuff like, look twice a year. I got to go to the dry cleaner <laughs> right before the conference and mm -hmm. right before somebody I know is getting married. And actually both of those things are happening in the next 10 days. So it's very well, exciting. Two weeks, yeah. Um, so it's a good time of year. One of my favorite, <laughs> I will say the national conference doesn't feel a little bit like Christmas, um, but I don't have to cook. I just get to go out and eat yeah. all the good food that Charleston yeah. has to yeah. offer. You get to drink the wine, eat the cheese and read the book. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. We should done. have a close reads holiday and everybody has to do that as a tradition. What would be the date of said holiday? That's a great question. I mean, it would need to kind of correspond with something bookish with an author's birthday or maybe how, an author's death. How about tomorrow? I love this idea. Is something but going on tomorrow? Together. Well, I mean, how hard would that be? Is it Ayn Rand's birthday tomorrow? Yeah, is that yeah, tomorrow? What Ayn Rand's are you birthday? saying right now? <laughs> you're you're fired. Wendell Berry's birthday is I think in August or September. We could do him. We could do that would be a good Tolstoy, one. Uh, Tolkien. We'll have to think on this. We'll have this to think idea. on on, a, uh, okay. on, on the All official right. close reads holiday slash festival slash reason to get everyone together. The high and holy listeners. holiday of the exactly. close reads tradition. Well, before we get too into the to the weeds of planning a holiday um, and making it you know, a, a convincing lobbying for it to become a public banking holiday. We should probably discuss all the pretty horses. As I, I just said, have we, so many ideas right now about cheese and wine and books. Heidi, you just gonna have to hold on. We'll talk right. about it. Okay. All right. We'll talk Sounds about it. Don't good. Worry. All right. There, dot, there dot, will, dot. There will be a time for it. It's like yes. when you're texting somebody <laughs> and those little gray dot, dot, dots are coming up because you know, there will that be they're, time. they're thinking. And then the next day there they text you and say, Oh, sorry. Just saw this. 
You're like, you liar. You've already saw I it. already saw your dots. I okay, know. so I think Heidi going into, I promise I'll let you start, David, in a second. I think going into this final <laughs> chapter, these final the chapters. The listeners are so of, annoying. <laughs> of all the pretty horses, we shouldn't be thinking about wine and cheese. We should be thinking about hardtack and swill. That's kind of what faces us for the last I am of. banning hardtack and swill from Even the, for the last holiday. The last, I think to get in the spirit of the conclusion of All the Pretty Horses, it has to be hardtack and swill. This is why I never wanted to read Cormac McCarthy <laughs> right now. <laughs> you were just clarified. I'm not even ever, ever having swill. We just clarified for her why she's always resisted for so long. That's but here right. we are at the end. She has now... Swill. She is now, despite her fears of this will, she has read it and she has listened mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Tim, this makes how many times for you? I think Do you eight. even know. Okay. And so that and I, I kind of am ready to start on number nine probably yeah. next week. I I just I think this is four for mm-hmm. me. I don't remember what I said at the beginning, but I was counting and I think it's four. I may have forgotten one somewhere along the line. Um it's a pretty good book. Pretty good, it's book. pretty good book. It's awesome. It's so, an awesome book. There's, there's, I have, I, I was thinking about how to start, how to start this conversation as, as I do, you know, I jot down a few notes, write down a few questions, mark up my book as I'm reading with a pencil, try to identify a spot that can get us into it. And then I didn't know where to begin because again, we get the book is a different book here. We could talk about how I think there's no other way that this book could possibly have ended. We could talk about how, the final sentence harkens back to the very first sentence of the book, structurally, thematically, metaphorically. We could talk about poor John Grady and his uh, leg. <laughs> we could talk about his departure from Rollins. We could talk about the way Cormac McCarthy deals with justice in this section and the conversation with the judge. Um, we could talk about all kinds of questions. So what I'm wondering is, Tim... Mm-hmm. Having read this for the twelfth time, I assume mm-hmm. you read it three times since I last asked you. Mm-hmm. Having read it this this ninth time, what most stands out to you about why you think you love this book? This is kind of a how self aware are you question. I'm, mm. And personally, I'm very I'm fascinated with the idea of being like a self aware reader and un like the way books say a lot about ourselves and and how our tastes change because of that and, and those sorts of things. So having read it all, for all these years, why does this book stay with you? Why do you keep going back to it? Nine times is a lot. You could have read eight other books, <laughs> but you yeah. come back to this book over and over again. And I'd love to know if you have any more of a sense of why that is having read it this time. You probably mm-hmm. had a reason, reasons for it the fifth time, the seventh time and so forth. But has that come into more focus for you? Do you think you've discovered new things about yourself or about the book that have helped you think about the book in a different way? I I don't know if it's a discovery that I made during this read, but a recent read, I kind of came to the conclusion that I think the number one reason that I love this book is that I always feel like it's telling the truth. Always, always, Hmm. always telling the truth. And mixed up in that is this very, I don't know what the right word is, but this very 
spiritual, this very metaphysical, this very poetic vision of the meaning of life and nature and kind of like this masculine journey into the world. And so subsets of that, I love the relationship between Rollins and John Grady Cole. I love the relationship between Alejandra and John Grady Cole. I love the relationship between John Grady Cole and the horses, the horses that he breaks, tames, rides, salvages, you know, I, so that's a big list. Maybe I should just <laughs> stop. That's a big list. All the pretty horses always tells the truth. I, I honestly, that's the number one reason it, I just trust Cormac McCarthy so fully. I think if it made it into the book, it is the way that it was. And that's a, maybe it's a strange thing to say about a book that's fiction, but I have had, I'm sure that you guys have had these moments where we talked about it on the air, where an author is um, grinding their own ax. They want you to believe something about the world and they kind of, they lie to you in order to do it. I think I used the example of um, James Duncan, the, the writer of um, the river, Wye. river Wye and a brother's K. I just feel like he lied to me and Man, when man, you that just, poor guy's taking a beating from you on this podcast. That's well, not even I mean, about his I book. <laughs> part of the reason why I'm not afraid to name his name is because that's such a, to me, like it's the sacred task. Writing fiction is a sacred task. And it's hard to write fiction. It's hard to keep someone's attention for that long. It's hard to, you know, to weave a spell that's so powerful that people forget they're writing a book and they imagine until they enter this alternate world. Mm -hmm. And when someone violates that trust for me, that's a, that's a really serious violation. And you may not agree with Cormac McCarthy's vision of the world, but I would press anybody to find a place where he's lying to you. You know what I mean? Mm. What? What do you, what would he, what would he be lying? You mean, you mean about how the world works, how the world was for the, in this period? What is yeah. he truth about? What, what would he be lying about? Okay. I'll use a, a simple example. If I did jump in at any time. In this section, John Grady Cole ride, rides back into, back into town. And there are these two men that are working on the engine of a, of a truck, of a car. And if he described the car and that car did not exist for 10 years after the moment that we see in the story, right? Let's just imagine that. That's just a failure of research. Cormac McCarthy didn't do his work well enough to realize that this is a model that didn't exist during the time that John Grady Cole reenters the town, right? That's kind of forgivable. That's just, I would just say our, our author was lazy. He didn't do enough research. Or he's making, he's just using it for creative purposes and- yeah, but I think there would be, if he's using it for creative purposes, I would think there would, we could kind of see, hopefully, the purpose behind it. And you could kind of, right, that'd be right, tolerable. Yeah. yeah. But I think since we're joking about Ayn Rand, part <laughs> of the reason that all of uh, the three of us have such a profound dislike for Ayn Rand is that her, her books are like thick, thick lies that encase 
like germs of genuine insight and truth. Like I think her vision of like the responsibility of individual human beings for their own lives. I think that's a profound insight and one that like, I really want to live my life that way. Too bad that that insight is surrounded by 682 pages of drivel of like, that's a nice way of saying it, a really (laughs) nice way of saying it. So the example that I gave of Cormac McCarthy, um, like a research error is he, I, I think he doesn't make those, but also I just think that his insight into the psychology of his characters to the way that people operate actually in the world. I, see. I yeah. just find that there's a consistency. There's it's, it's consistent and it's consistent also to like the experience that I have of male and female psychology. I know that his focus is especially on male psychology. Um, so it's a little bit easier for me to kind of register because I share that male psychology. I just think he's, I think he's a master at that. Heidi, do you, is, is this, I mean, is this a motivating factor for why you came to like Cormac McCarthy? Do you have other reasons why? Because, and I, I was going to ask a, a variation on the same question to you after a second reading, first time reading and plus a listen, I would love to know how your opinion on the book has changed and evolved and what it means to you and see how it differs from a person who's read it nine times. Right. I, I really love what you just said, Tim, a lot. And I, I think I love it for the same reason, just inverted. Let me explain that. This is, it is a very masculine story. And so I love it because it, I I feel like if I was a man, I would love it because it kind of would like take me more into myself, but because I'm a woman, I love it because it kind of takes me out of myself and makes me look at the world in a different way um, and understand the world in a different way, which I think is the same thing you just said, just inverted about him telling the truth all the time, Yeah, because it is one of those stories like it. Like in the first podcast, we talked about how this particular novel has almost like a mythological or primeval quality to it. And that's the reason why myths are so powerful is because they tell the truth about being human, even though on the surface or on the literal level of the story, it's something that might never happen. Right. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this because this idea of what David, what you just said about being a self-aware reader is as I've been preparing my talks for the national conference, both of my talks are about kind of entering into a mythological story and finding it as a mirror to your own soul and then using it as kind of like a map to navigate the world, which is something David Hicks says in Norms and Nobility. That's the purpose of mythos. That's the purpose of the imaginative cultural experience. We create myths as a culture and then those myths then become a map for the people of uh, within the culture kind of use the values and the ideals that are embedded within the mythology as maps for how to navigate the world. And, and so that's why somebody like C.S. Lewis call, says that, or, or Tolkien says that myths tell a truer story, 
right? That's what we mean by that. Because um, on the literal level, it doesn't happen that way. There's not gods and goddesses wandering around the earth and intervening in the lives of men, at least that we can see. Maybe there are. Um, and I think that Cormac McCarthy has earned, then, as you've said, Tim, he kind of goes that way within his novels. They're not myths, they're novels, but they do have this kind of mythological primeval truth to them, this quality to them, this psychological consistency, as you said, uh, and this enduring, um, uh, the characters kind of go through this recognizable and enduring story of the development of the soul throughout Mm -hmm. the novels. So as I read it, this time, I do, I, I experienced that, you know, John Grady Cole is, he's, he's three things, right? He's more than a man, because he can do things that regular men can't do. He's his own man, he's a specific character with an, his own individuality, his own story. And then in a sense, he's kind of like an everyman, right? Like the every man is kind of on this journey that he's on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really hard to write a character like that really hard and he succeeds McCarthy succeeds and because of that then we can all recognize our own humanity in his journey and and we can kind of submit to that and learn from it so this brings up a question that I thought about a lot as coming to the end of this reading how is JGC how is John Grady Cole different at the end of the book than he was at the beginning how has he changed he's heartbroken um after going um, through everything that he's gone through. I think Alejandra, I don't know that Alejandra broke his heart as much as the world that she inhabited broke his heart. Thou shalt not enter here, you know, is kind of what that world said. I actually think he's wiser in a way that he probably wished that he wasn't wiser, but I think he knows a lot more mm-hmm. about how the world operates. I think it's a lot bloodier than he thought it was. I don't, I don't think of him as a particularly naive character at the beginning of the book, but he's young. He's a young man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he could probably have heard a hundred cowboy stories of, you know, slaughter yeah. and bloodshed. It's not abstract and anymore. goring men in the stomach. But it's different when you see it. It's different when you're like taking the knife yourself. Heidi, what do you think? How do you, how would you, so we have, Tim says he's heartbroken, he's wiser. I think that's true. Um, I think that he, oh man. I mean, those, those two words kind of cover it for me. He is heartbroken. And one thing that I love about JGC Mm. is he doesn't, he always, he's just such a quintessential American, right? He's, and like he, he goes into this culture with this, not naivete, as you said, but this set of assumptions that are very American, meaning I can, I'm going to go on my own, like this or with a buddy that I trust and I'm going to encounter the world on the terms that I have accepted. And, and then when he finds that those terms are no longer sufficient, he changes his, uh, his strategy. Right. And then when he discovers like a wall, like there's no actual strategy that is going to overcome this 
particular obstacle in my path. I'm not going to get the girl. I'm not going to get the ranch. Um, and I've lost my best friend and I'm heartbroken and wounded and like, I'm going to get that horse. That's what I'm going to do. Right. Like, um, and then he responds and still as this like very American man, then he just kind of goes off into the world as a lone cowboy. Hmm. So I think in many ways, even in his wisdom and his heartbreak, he ends in a lot of ways as he has begun. And, um, but knowing himself for the first time to use a, hmm. a different, you know, t- to use a reference to T.S. Eliot, like he, he begins, he ends at the beginning, but knows himself for the first time. And that's, that's a worthwhile place to be like, that's, that's a worthwhile journey. Um, but it's a lonely one, right? So we are left then with our own reaction to, his solitary presence in a harsh world. So would, would you say that self-aware he's more self-aware? Is that what you're saying? Is that one of the things you would? I think he is, but he's not like self-aware in the, in the very contemporary sense that we would, you know, go to counseling and learn a bunch of yeah. jargon and say that, put a label on ourselves and you know what I mean? Prop, yeah, yes. Yeah. Like that. So but I think that he is, I think he's self-aware in the sense that he's fully inhabiting the moment that he's in and um, has has gained something for the future. Maybe that's even a more better, maybe that's a better way to know yourself than to go sit in an office and put a bunch of labels on yourself. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so as you have been, t- the two of you been talking, I've just been writing down words that came to mind that I think kind of summarize ways that he is different. So John Grady Cole, the end of the book is now heartbroken. Tim says, wiser. I put self-aware down and we can use that just because it's a loose category. Uh, Heidi, you mentioned that he had ridden off with a friend. Uh, along the way, he meets another friend. He also meets someone who he falls in love with. At the beginning, he has a father. And at the end, all those people are gone. And he's solitary. So he's, he's alone at the end. Uh, he's definitely wounded. That was a word that came to mind physically and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but he's also proven. He's proven himself. I think he's proven what he's capable of to himself. That's one of the things you said reminded, made me think of that. So that's six things that, that, that the two of you were saying that I, those are the Speaking of labels, those are the labels on those groups of things that I just put down. Um, the reason I ask this question is because why he leaves Texas. One of the, I think the important things to ask at the end is why John Grady Cole leaves. Um, I think, and and I'm fascinated by, yeah, like well, why he leaves? He doesn't go back to home and try to make a start there and hang out with his friend. His his best friend is there, right? Um, his, I know he doesn't have the ranch and his father's gone, but why does he, why does he ride out of town at the end? Why does he, you know, ride off into the sunset? I mean, he literally rides off into the sunset. Um, and, and so we can talk about that as an image, but I think we all, I also want to talk about why he did makes that choice. And I think one of the entryways into that is by saying, well, this is a guy who is, who is now, this is how he has changed that it leads up to this moment when he leaves. Yes. And one of the things that the book talks about continuously that we have brought up on the show a bunch is that this is a book about making decisions. Like if you make this decision, this is going to happen. If you don't make this decision, this could happen or this might not happen. No matter what decision you make, you don't actually know what's going to happen. 
but something is going to happen because you made that decision. And at the end of the book, he makes another big decision. And that big decision is to ride off into the sunset, to leave his friend behind and to leave the home that he grew up in behind as well. So given what we know of him and how he's changed throughout the story, why do you think John Grady Cole leaves? And before I want to say one more thing while I let you think one more rambly thought, it struck me like a brick in the head that I had questions about why he left like intellectual questions, but to Tim's point about truth, didn't doubt that choice that creative choice for Cormac McCarthy, right? I said at the beginning, there's no other way this book could have ended dramatically. Like from the creative choice, this is the only option I believe Cormac McCarthy had. He made the right decision. But so mm-hmm. I think it feels, you know, how you just respond emotionally or, you know, just, it just feels right that Cormac McCarthy made that decision. But why is it that it feels right? Like, why did he, why did he leave at the end? Why does it feel so right? That's the question that I had because he spent the whole book trying to earn us as a reader feeling like he made the right decision (laughs) and how you get there is (gasps) fascinating and ridiculous and difficult. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I Unless just, you just disagree. How <laughs> I see like a couple of big events that happen, I think leading up to the conclusion of the book, they, they both happen in this section. One of the first pages that we read in this section, yeah. Alejandra comes to him there in the hotel and she says, I can't be with you. You know, this is the thing in the world that he least wants to hear. Page 254 is his response. He saw very clearly how all of his life led only to this moment and all after led nowhere at all. He felt something cold and soulless enter him like another being and he imagined it would smile and it smiled malignly and he had no reason to believe it would ever leave. Now, fast forward, he goes back to get his horses. He has to take the sheriff hostage the man who did him wrong as wrong as you can be done you know he basically trumps up charges against john grady cole he takes him hostage they ride out into the desert and the jailer it's he's not a sheriff i can't remember what he exactly is um but they ride out into the the captain that's right and John Grady Cole, it makes all the sense in the world for John Grady Cole to kill, kill him. Captain, not but. just because it would be safer for him to be dead, but also because it would be kind of like a completion of this revenge cycle. Everything in the world says John Grady Cole should kill that man, especially coming on the heels of this something cold and soulless entering him and feeling like it's never going to leave him. But what does John Grady Cole say to him? I'm not like you. I'm not like you. And he makes a decision to let the man go. The Capitan goes and it comes back at John Grady Cole. Again, if he had just killed the captain, he would not have to worry about it. 
But the captain is discovered by these men. And we think, oh my goodness, he wakes up, does John Grady Cole to the barrel of a rifle. And you think, oh man, no, he did the right thing and it's going to go wrong for him again. No, actually, we get a glimmer of justice. These men, it's like we don't get much information about them, just that they are men of the country. And it seems very clear that they know who the Capitan is and they're there to bring justice to this guy. And not only do they let John Grady Cole go, but they actually equip him for the journey. He gets a serape for the journey. So I think... To me, even though that's not the biggest moment of the book by a long shot, that to me is the clearest indication of John Grady Cole's future. So did he discover himself in Mexico? No, but he was put into position to a position to make like a life, a, a, to make a choice about the sort of man that he wanted to be. And I think he chose, like he made the hardest decision and it was a good decision. I agree with that. I think that to what David brought up earlier, if one of the Hmm. primary preoccupations of the novel uh, is what is justice and how does justice manifest in the world, right? I think in the second half of the novel, we do see that this, that, that John Grady Cole's strong moral center uh, is, although very individualized, that it, it does indeed produce more than just suffering in the world, right? That there, that there is, uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, even, the, even calling those men men of the country is significant, super significant. He draws a lot of attention to it, even within the paragraph on that page, uh, that this country is not just a savage, brutal wasteland of like lost souls. There is an mm-hmm. internal justice. There is a cohesiveness to this culture. It's just not John Grady Cole's culture. And I think one of the one of the questions raised by the novel is with especially with between and the I think the primary example of this is JGC and Alejandra. The question is, can these cultures find any common ground? Can they, so to speak, marry each other in some way, right? And the conclusion the novel comes to is no. They are, they're, they're different. There's, there's a, there is a barrier between Mexico and the United States, and it can't be crossed, but each of them has its own beauty, its own cohesiveness, its own, uh, its own, its own goodness. It's just specific, you know? I really want to hear what you guys think about the last two kind of big characters that we meet at the end of the book, the judge and I hesitate to call him a preacher, the on-air personality, Jimmy Blevins. Yeah. Um, because you were saying, Heidi, you know, how like mythical this book feels, Jimmy you know, Blevins, it has yeah, just yeah. such a, a huge scope. And so for the final two character, new characters that we meet to be a judge and a preacher, they feel, um, th- they feel more symbolic 
than very, very much like a so. remeeting of of you know very archetypal Rollins. Yeah, very archetypal. That's a better way of saying it. Very archetypal. So one of the things I love about this is I think what he does is he takes these characters and he often ties them to other moments or images that often mm -hmm. can be kind of fleeting. So in this case, right after what um, you were reading, Tim, on the bottom of 255, there's a part, she's basically just left him. Yeah, she gets on the train, she leaves. And what does he see? It says, when he walked out the door, he didn't know where he was. A fine rain was falling. He tried to take his bearings from La Bufa standing above the city to the west, but he was easily lost in the winding streets. And he asked a woman for the way to the centro. And she pointed out the street and then watched him as he went. When he reached Hidalgo, a pack of dogs was coming up the street at a high trot. And as they crossed in front of him, one of their numbers slipped and scrabbled in the wet uh, stones and went down. The others wow. turned in a snarling mass of teeth and fur, but the fallen dog struggled up before he could be set upon and all went on as before. He, he walked wow. out to the edge of town along the highway north and put out his thumb. He had almost no money and he had a long way to go. And then the bottom of 256, um, he's lying in the, he gets a ride and then he's, he's lying next to the horse at, at a, a horse on a stake rope and he's lying there at night. It says, he imagined the pain of the world to be like some formless parasitic being seeking out the warmth of human souls wherein to incubate. And he thought he knew what made one liable to its visitations. I'm fascinated, side note, by the form of that sentence. We could talk about that another time. I might have to write an essay on that one sentence. What he had not known was that it was mindless and so had no way to know the limits of those souls. And what he feared was that there might be no limits. And then there's a scene a little bit later. He's, most of these things happen as he's just kind of wandering home. And he runs across a wedding. Mm -hmm. um, and it's after he's dealt with. David, before you get into the wedding, what, what I mean, like I, I have a picture of what these scenes, how they really like underscore the theme of the book. But how do you, how do you see those scenes? Okay, so I was going to, I think the wedding thing is important. I'll just mention that there's a wedding scene along the way too. So he sees these dogs, he sees this wedding. And I think that this ties back to the question of the preacher and the judge, because we have a wedding and, we and that's tied to the preacher. And then there's, um, I think the judge in some ways is tied to these, this dog scene. And I'm not saying he's drawing this direct one-to-one -one correlation, but there's all these things that thematically seem to like, you know, you, you could do like a, make a board on your wall and tie like strings, like clues in a investigation or something. And like tie a crazy how, person? Show how these different things, like a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> um, you could tie all and these things together. It? What are the, how? Uh, what do you mean by it? <laughs> I think he's asking you to draw those, to, uh -huh. to like uh -huh. verbally draw the strings. Yeah. Well, I can't do that. No. Um, okay. So, well, I think we've got judges in this question of justice. So if a judge represents justice or, or forces us to ask questions of justice and contemplate them in the context of the story, then what is the preacher asking us to contemplate? And I'd love to, how do you guys dive into, like, how did you guys think about that? The judge maybe is more obvious because they have a conversation about justice. The preacher goes and takes a nap and the, the wife, I guess, is the one that 
serves him cobbler and you know he they're alone that there had been someone there and she makes a point to say you know we're alone now um but she does this whole diatribe about how great jimmy blevins is and how he's trying to serve people and it wears him out he has to take naps so i don't know that that's as obvious like thematically what mccarthy's trying to do there as the judge and the questions of justice how do you read that that scene like is there a theme that you do or an idea that you take from that go ahead Heidi I think you were going to say something the scene with Blevins senior I mean on ostensibly the plot point is to figure out if he is really Jimmy Blevins dad but that's left hanging which is fascinating to me like totally fascinating to me because it seems that JGC walks away from that conversation feeling like it doesn't even matter anymore and that's interesting. There's something quite haunting about that scene. And I was trying to figure out why. And I want to hear the two of your thoughts on it because I couldn't figure out what was so haunting to me. Maybe, maybe it was the juxtaposition of this preacher making a claim that he is solving so many problems of the world over the radio and the laying on of hands and all this juxtaposed with the depth of suffering explored by the novel that it takes place with, with, without being seen by anybody. And as, as you said, David, that, that the idea of like this kind of nameless suffering, this, this, the wounds of the world, I keep thinking there's a, there's a poem by, um, a Somali poet, Warson Shire, I think it is. And it, one of the sections of the poem is so haunting. It is. And I think I'm getting this. I think I'm getting this word for word or pretty close. Is I, when I got, I opened an atlas and I ran my fingers down the page and I asked the world, where does it hurt? And it answered everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And I think that is one of the big explorations of Cormac McCarthy and maybe one of the reasons, Tim, why you are like so revere his unflinching truth telling is because there is within Cormac McCarthy's novels, this uh, unflinching is the word I can think of, this like ironclad choice to gaze at the suffering of the world always Mm -hmm. right and to take it into account Mm -hmm. and and to to hold it up for us to just look at right like imagine him like taking this like nameless suffering and just like look at this look at this to us as readers right and i think that's profoundly brave and and so that and that obviously is uh, traced throughout the novel directly explored in the novel even in that section david just read like this sense of that 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 suffering is just this parasite. Uh, yeah. And it virus. doesn't care who it hurts. It's not personal. It's just, there you go. You're going to suffer. And that is terrifying, right? That's the existential void. And, and that is uh, what Jimmy Blevins senior offers to the world is insufficient to that. It is not enough. And yet he's exhausted and overwhelmed by it so much that he has to go to sleep in the middle of a conversation. And I I think that that does tie in if you were trying strings on a wall, like a crazy person, it actually isn't crazy. It does indeed make a pattern. And it, um, 
and it does connect with all of this exploration. And so I, I, I think that that's maybe why I found it so haunting as both times in reading it and listening to it, that conversation just kind of like unsettled me, but I couldn't say why. And maybe that's yeah. why. There's two key themes in those two conversations, which happen back to back right before he gets home. Right. And one, I, when you hear the conversation with the judge, there's this theme of justice. Right. But the more interesting theme in that section for me is the theme of confession because he mm-hmm. wants uh-huh. to confess. He wants to be healed. Yeah. And so first he goes, he, he wants to feel as if he can be He treats him like the priest, right? Done. Like it's him that right. he treats yeah. as he confesses to him and wants to be absolved. He, and, and then, yeah, he says, um, he says, why do you think you didn't kill him? And John Grady says, I don't know. And it says, well, said the judge, I guess that's something between you and the good Lord. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say? Yes, sir. I, I didn't mean I, that I expected an answer. Maybe there ain't no answer. It just bothered me that you might think I was something special. I ain't. Well, that ain't a bad way to be bothered. He picks up his hat. It looks like he's about to get, to get up, but he doesn't. The reason I wanted to kill him was because I stood there and let him walk that boy out in the trees and shoot him, and I never said nothing. Would it have done any good? No, sir, but that don't make it right. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, there is a question of justice. Like, did, but, but more than that, there's a question of confession, like being cleansed by confession. And the very next scene, you get the theme of healing. And in neither case does he come away from it, I think, feeling truly cleansed or healed healing. What do you, that I, I thought you were going to say the very next scene you meet Jimmy Blevins, the radio. Yeah. Because we're, people, there's that theme of healing because people are like, he t- she's talking about how he gets worn out because people are oh. laying their hands on the radio and stuff like that. What would you think I was going to say though? Well, I thought you were, you, that's why I, you were, you were talking about what I was going to say. What I thought was the next thing was the encounter with Jimmy Blevins. Yes. Yeah. To to echo your point, David, he begins the conversation, the second conversation with the judge. He comes back to the judge's house and the judge says, you know, John Grady calls says, I don't feel right about what happened in the courtroom. And the judge says, what way do you feel? And he said, I don't feel justified. I don't feel justified. And then he walks through all the reasons that he doesn't feel justified, justified legal language, like, in the Protestant world, especially salvific language, you know, we've been like brought to the bar and found wanting. So he goes to the judge. I think the judge handles it beautifully. He hears his confession in a way, you know, but it seems like John Grady Cole is still not satisfied. Like maybe he recognizes, okay, I, I haven't done anything legally wrong. I'm not culpable in that way, but he still feels guilty. He does not feel justified. He does not feel made right. And I can't think, it's disturbing to me because I'm a Christian that Jimmy Blevins is given the last voice of possible justification for John Grady Cole. And I kind of wrestle with this. You know, I wrestle with that. I think the biggest buffoon in the entire book is a Protestant Christian radio personality. He's kind of given the last word. And I think that um, Cormac McCarthy's answer is that um, what Jimmy Blevins radio personality has to offer 
is it cannot help John Grady Cole. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? If that's well, what Cormac McCarthy's. Well, I was saying, I think it's super crucial the way the scene with the judge ends though, because he says, there's nothing wrong with you, son. I think you'll get it sorted out. And he says, yes, sir. I guess I will if I live. And at the very end, it says, he's, he's leaving. It says, he turned the horse and looked at him standing in the door light. And he raised his hand and the judge raised a hand back. And he rode out down the street from pool to pool of lamplight until he had vanished in the dark. And I think it's, I, I may be reading too much into it, but I think it's important that he's going from pool to pool of lamplight. Like I think Cormac McCarthy using that image is, if nothing else, fascinating. Because I think in many ways it represents the way McCarthy views a journey through the world itself from pool. You're going from pool to pool of lamplight and between the pools, there's darkness. Um, and I think I can see that. Go ahead, Heidi. No, I'm just like nodding vigorously because I totally agree with that. I completely, and I think that's one of the reasons why JGC is the ideal McCarthy, McCarthyan hero, because he's so led by his internal moral compass that, that it helps him navigate, right, between the pools of light within these pools of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think it's one of the reasons why he ends up alone and why that feels right to us, mm-hmm. uh, that, mm-hmm. that there is this archetypal image of this this man, you know, having to navigate the world alone and that that's the way it just has to be because the world is not, you know, the world is not enough for, for this, you know, kind of solitary hero and the right culture for that, the solitary hero is always going to be America. <laughs> it is the, this is, this is the place for the individual lone wolf hero. Who has, you know, the troubled dark side to him and who's been through all of these sad things. Like there's no, it, I mean, it's, we want him to be with Alejandro, right? But it would feel wrong. Like that it, if they ended up together, this would not be a great book. There is something about him that kind of begs for the lonely, solitary hero's journey. I do think it's important to, to, finish the thought about Jimmy Blevins. If there are two ways that a person in the United States at this time in our history, the 1950s, can come to some sense of justification, it's either through like some sort of legal justification or through, I think what Jimmy Blevins is probably preaching on the air. And within the United States, there's always been these kind of like two streams of thinking about Christianity. One of them is kind of like the big top. It's the Jimmy Blevins way. It's the broad path. And there, I mean, our country, if you've done much reading in American church history, I've done more than I've wanted to. (laughs) No, that's not true. Not more than I wanted to. I would like to do more. But it becomes very clear that there are these two kind of approaches. One of them is big, wide, shallow, it's Jimmy Blevins. And the 
other is this smaller stream, either within that or beside that, depending on how you understand it, um, that finds that to be deeply satisfying, maybe not even like, it, I don't know, not maybe not even the same religion that Jesus founded, you know, more of like a big top religion or something like that. And I, I, I think that Cormac McCarthy is keenly aware of kind of like the history of Christianity in the United States. And um, I think he closes the door to that being an opportunity to John Grady Cole finding some sense of justification, which I think is what he has not resolved in himself at the end of the book. And I think, David, the picture of traveling through the lamplight, darkness to light, darkness to light, back and forth. I completely agree that I think that's where John Grady Cole is when our book ends. He's on horseback. We don't know where he's going to end up. Oh, but we find out in book three of the border trilogy. Tune in next month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on A-T-T. Hey, okay. But, but we got to talk about the preacher because you seem to think you, I think you even called him a buffoon. How did you think, is that how you read him? Uh, it was the first time and not the second time. Really? Yeah. How did you read him? I read him. I, I think this is open to interpretation and you may very well be right. Um, I read him the second time as a sincere, overwhelmed, believing man that had bought into his own hype. But The difference between that and a buffoon is... It's slim, but I also uh-huh. think that the first time I read him, I read him as a fake and a phony. Oh. And the second time I did not. And so I, th- and I, I mean, do you think that it's J- Jimmy Blevins' dad? No, no. I think, I mean, don't we, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's no, not. No, because they say we, they say, they, they make a reference to somebody being missing in the family. We just eat in the kitchen. Now that, now that there's just two of us. He didn't ask who was missing. Thank you, David. So it's po- so it's possible. It's possible that that's Jimmy Blevins. So Tim, you would say he thing? just heard on the radio the name and used that name. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely think that McCarthy left the door open that these are Jimmy Blevins' parents. I that, yeah, it's it's totally possible. It's totally possible. And so, but I think it's intentionally ambiguous, right? And so. I, and it makes it maybe a little more interesting if he actually is. I think you have to go back and read Blevins' words mm-hmm. earlier in the book with that in mind to try to suss that out. I, I don't know why. I think that the fact that they've never seen the horse yeah, and that they don't that's... associate the horse with their son. I mean, granted, Jimmy Blevins Jr., if he is a junior, Jimmy Blevins Jr. could have stolen the horse long after he left his father's home. Absolutely well, plausible. Right, because he tells the story about how he went off to work in the bowling alley and that's when right. he got, you know, right. And so I think that there's that, that either way, it doesn't fall apart if they don't recognize the horse. Um, mm-hmm. But I, like, I think it's pretty, I think it's ambiguous purposefully. Um, and I, you know, that sentence that David read was so intentional that it had to be McCarthy leaving the door open. Um, And the fact that uh, JGC doesn't follow up, which is in that 
perfectly written yeah. sentence, right? That's when it says John Gray Cole did not ask who was missing, that he's decided it doesn't even matter anymore. Something in that interaction has led him to, this isn't about the horse. I don't even think I want to know. I, I would, I would say now it comes down to like a, a question of John Grady Cole's character. Mm-hmm. Like if it possibly is, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like trying to justify my own position. I just need to be justified. I, would I think, think it's John supposed Cole, to be not, I don't think you're supposed to know. I just think John Grady Cole would press into that a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm it wrong. It says he doesn't though. It straight up yeah. says he does not ask. I, m- meaning if he was con- if he thought that there was reason to believe this was their son, he w- he would have pressed into it. I, so thus, I don't I think he did not believe it was a possibility. But I, I don't it's, know. Yeah, it's, it's a minor point. To me, the, yeah. the funny thing is I would read it more like once he realizes who they are, he doesn't want to put them through. Yes. He doesn't put he doesn't ask cuz he doesn't want to have to explain what happened to them. That's funny. And I would think John Grady Cole would want to be able, I mean, like if you have the option of having a child, of never knowing what happened to your child and hearing your child is dead, I think John Grady Cole would know they're both horribly painful. I'd rather deal with the the pain from like knowledge of what actually happened. So again, it's intentionally ambiguous. It's left open to the reader and you can make a case from either side. This is Um, Hemingway's negation thing. Exactly. Yes. It's, yeah, it's left blank there. Um, Well, and that, what you just said, Tim, reminded me obliquely, it's a little bit tangential, but of the conversation with the judge, which I think reminded me so much of, as David said, it was so confessional in nature. Um, and also it kind of tugged on my heartstrings a little for this like fatherless boy looking for a father figure to tell mm-hmm. him like mm-hmm. in the absence of his father, he needs a man to tell him he did right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also, the, the way that the judge responded to him mm-hmm. must have been, so healing to him, I was really glad for a, um, this is why he's not a nihilist, right? I'm really thankful for those um, threads of grace that go through the book that he, he honors him and also and takes into account John, he sees John Grady Cole's strong morality, right? His moral mm-hmm. center. He sees it and he's moved by it. Mm-hmm. The judges. And rewards it even. Rewards it. Um, and yeah, exactly. Affirms him. And I think that kind of blessing that not only the absolution of the sins, so to speak, but also the blessing is kind of a fortifying moment for John Grady Cole as he sets out on his new journey as, you know, in uh, the solitary American hero. Yeah. Whatever happens to him next, he was, somebody heard him, somebody heard his confession, somebody absolved him, and someone set him free to to move on with that kind of um, resolution on his life. The, the judge is almost Solomonic in a way. I mean, the way that he determines 
kind of like gives proof case for John Grady Cole's story. He has like these two proofs. He asks, what Put is your, the name of that? Hacendado, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Or how many, many, how many hectares? Yep. How many hectares yeah. are? And then the other thing that he asked for is like. Um, Drop your drawers. Yeah. He asked to see the gunshot wound. Yeah. A, like a really clever way of kind of confirming. Yeah. This, this story, this crazy story that you just told, there's a couple of proofs, one of memory and one of physical evidence. So this preacher though, I want to come see if we can come to some resolution on it. And so you think he, there's a buffoon and then Heidi said a fine line between a buffoon and so an earnest, someone who's genuine. How do we read? Go ahead, Tim. If he's Jimmy Blevins Sr. And if his boy is the one who we meet along the way, and this is a heartbroken character, Jimmy Blevins Sr., the radio personality, is a heartbroken character. Boy, I have so much more sympathy for him, and I would be really reluctant to call him a buffoon. He's a heartbroken man if that's the case. And I can have all the sympathy in the world for him. Since I don't read him that way, it's hard for me to see him as anything other than kind of someone who's reading his own headlines, you know? Yeah. But even then, so I, (laughs) even in that case, even if Jimmy Blevins was Jimmy Blevins, the boy was his son, we have Mm -hmm. to hold him culpable in some ways for Jimmy Blevins. I find him less sympathetic if he's just Jimmy Blevins real father. Because he has wounded his son so much, driven him out, and he doesn't even, and now all he can talk about is his ministry and all the good he's doing in the world and blah, blah, blah. So it's really interesting. This is one of those, 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 this, this is one of those parts of a novel that brings out different reactions and different readers, which is, mm-hmm. goes to the power of leaving something open-ended within a story, right? Because I find him way more sympathetic if he's not Jimmy Blevins' father, if he's just like this childless man trying to like do the right thing and, but he's bought into his own hype. And uh, so anyway, that I, I don't think, I think it's pretty clear he's not rich. So he's just a middle-class guy. Oh, and I, that's, this is so funny because I thought he was rich, like the food at that table. Yeah. Living out of the country. Well, chicken and dumplings and peach cobbler though. And um, it's a very country like food. So much and buttermilk. He doesn't What's have the buttermilk they're yeah. drinking. Well, you're right. He eats well. So that's just yeah. interesting. Two very different responses to the same situation. Uh, because in he, the lives book. In the, he doesn't live in Mexico. Yeah. So here's the thing though. Like the, the thing that in great books leaves us not knowing how to respond to a character like this is they can say things. They can say things that are both true and also problematic. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, in one paragraph after he prays and it's the, you know, he prays with particular reference to Russia and the Jews and cannibalism. <laughs> and he asked it all in Christ's name, amen, and raised up and reached for the cornbread. Um, mm-hmm. Then it says, people always want to know how I got started. He said, well, it was no mystery to me. When I first heard a radio, I knew what it was for and it wasn't no questions about it neither. My, my mother's brother built a crystal set, bought through the mail it come in a box and you put it together. We lived in South Georgia and we'd heard about the radio, of course, but we never had actually seen one play with our own eyes. 
it's a world of difference. Well, I knew what it was for because there couldn't be no more excuses, you see. A man might harden his heart to where he could no longer hear the word of God, but you turn the radio up real loud. Well, hardness of heart won't do it no more. He's got to be deaf as a post. Besides, there's a purpose for everything in this world, you see. Sometimes it might be hard to see what it is. But the radio? Well, my, my. You can't make it no plainer than that. The radio was in my plans from the start. It's what brought me to the ministry. And then there's the bit right after that where he says, when it says, well, when he was done, he wiped his mouth and pushed back his chair. Well, he said, y'all, excuse me. I got to go work. The Lord don't take no holidays. So I find this fascinating because on the one hand, and then he goes to sleep, right? On the one hand, and then his wife brags about him. So a lot of the stuff is his wife bragging about him. But on the one hand, the, there couldn't be no more excuses. See, a man might harden his heart, but the radio can help us get away from that. There is a little bit of truth to that. But then he starts talking about how the radio was in his plans. And then when it says, I got to go to work and the Lord don't take no holidays, there's a clear structural connection between the Lord and himself thematically. Mm -hmm. So he does see himself as being, you know, this prophetic figure. And his wife sees him in that way as well. Yes. But... What does that mean about how, what the book is saying about the other things that he says? Yes. And that's what makes it complicated because he can say things that are true, but be a problem himself. And that's why I think we have a hard time with it and we can read right. it in different ways. Agreed. And I mean, either way, he is insufficient to the suffering that is presented by Cormac McCarthy mm-hmm. in this novel. Mm-hmm. He has no meaningful solutions mm-hmm. and he is, and he fails to, it's very clear that he lives in a tiny little protected world of luxury in which he's well nourished on how he has uh, on, on his life's work. And that meanwhile, the world is shrouded in darkness. And even this boy at his table is in a state of profound trauma and he doesn't, and all he does is talk about himself. Yes. So whether he has yeah. a good heart or whether he uh, or whether he is a, you know, just just praying, using religion as a way to enrich himself, um, either way, it's it's insufficient to the darkness of the world. And I think that's why Christians often don't like Cormac McCarthy or level accusations of nihilism toward him because it's in every single one of his novels. Religion doesn't help. So, in uh, Sunset Limited is the best example of that. Um, however, that's so funny. I read that so differently. Also, I read that so differently. I don't know how. And, and this one, I'll say to him, I do not know how you could possibly read that differently. Truly, I, I think. I mean, like we're about to get into a book that nobody right. has read or a play that nobody's read. I think it's um, point counterpoint. I don't know. That there's like a solution. Well, I don't. I, don't, I, don't, I will say I haven't read. The, I haven't read it. I've only seen it performed by Samuel mm-hmm. L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones. And it was mm-hmm. absolutely Tommy Lee Jones won that with honors mm-hmm. in that production. Mm-hmm. He sails away with that argument and he plays the nihilist. So this is, but I don't know if that was just the production and maybe not in the and, and maybe not in the written work. I haven't actually read it. But the point, the point I'm making stands, which is in no Cormac McCarthy novel does Christianity offer a meaningful solution to the darkness in the world. 
And that's why Christians often think of it as nihilistic. And I think that I don't think it is. I think Cormac McCarthy is groping around trying to find the light. And the best he can come up with is that there's these pools of light and you wander in darkness in between them. But he does not see God as an answer to life suffering, or at least he doesn't see American Christianity at the very least. I think that's a real big distinction. Yeah, I think that's a real big distinction. But, uh, he doesn't leave the door open for another form of Christianity to meet that. I wonder what that would look like. Yeah, right. But this is what you know, I'm saying. I don't think you can make any kind of case that Cormac McCarthy is an advocate for the faith. But I don't think he's a nihilist. I think he believes <clears throat> in human goodness for sure. But I think – see. I think to me, the problem is it's that line about a man might harden his heart to where he can no longer hear the word of God. And the problem is that even the minister, the radio isn't actually helping. Right. Like when, a, when someone has hardened their heart to the word of God, you can shout at them and you can play the radio as loud as you possibly can. And that's not going to cause them. It's not going to soften their hard hearts. And what makes someone harden their heart and then step step away from that hardness and, and become softer is a mystery. And mm. that I think is what totally is agree. the light and the darkness, those 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 moments of light, those moments of darkness are so tied to the question of whether someone has hardened their heart to God, to the word of God, and whether someone has softened is soft enough to hear. Um, and I think that mm. what we get with with John Grady Cole is someone navigating that who ultimately, I believe is not, has not hardened his heart to the word of God. And like, I, I'm using that, the phrase word of God, because Cormac McCarthy is using that. Agreed. I'm not saying that he is making like a polemical Christian novel, but I think that the idea of hardening your heart to the word of God is crucial to all of Cormac McCarthy's work. And mm-hmm. if you read Blood Meridian, it's especially crucial. I totally um, agree with everything Evil comes out of hardening one's heart it is a because the hardening of heart is a virus. It's a parasite. I think he's making a connection between those two things. It's, there's like an early church concept of sin as an illness going on in Cormac McCarthy, which yep. I'm kind of obsessed with in books. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I like this. I'm just now realizing that. And I think that that, like, I think that even the minister here, he he is he has hardened his heart to what is the true word of God, even as he, you know probably has done some good. I don't think McCarthy is saying this guy hasn't done some good. I think that he's just saying this guy has... It's weak. Yeah. 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 He has allowed himself to, you know, be obsessed with his own clippings. Not hair clippings. I agree so strongly with what you said. Mm -hmm. When I read Cormac McCarthy, I, I read him as sort of reminding the readers of what the kind of primeval wound is that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that he finds um, at best unsatisfying or at worst repugnant is the application of the balm without actually treating what the primeval wound is. And that's how I read Jimmy Blevins. And that's how I read some of his more um, cynical that's how, yeah, I wish there was another word. Cause I don't, cause I don't find that cynical. Well, to me, it's a cynical, ex- it, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, cynical expression it, by McCarthy, I guess is what I mean. 
Maybe so, but to me, going back to the kind of the original, you find it true question. I find it true. Mm -hmm. I find it true. And to be reminded of how profound the stakes are, how deep the wound is. I walk away from this book and I'm reminded. And I also am reminded and encouraged that John Grady Cole may not be able to explain to explain what exactly is going on in theological terms, but not only does he understand the wound, I also think that he is determined to not let that wound become a cancer that eats him. And he has seen example after example of example in this book of people who have let that wound completely infest their um infiltrate their lives and overwhelm them, but he won't do that. And if McCarthy doesn't talk about, um, I'm also like whatever we're going to call it, big top American Christianity, if he doesn't recommend that as a solution, again, I find that true. Tr- that's truth telling. Agreed. I mean, clearly it's, I'm, I am no, I have no, sympathies with big top Christianity. So that's the kind of like conviction, the kind of bias. So then for from. you, though, it works. That's one of the reasons Absolutely why you like the book, it because it speaks to a way of looking at the world that is, uh, I was going to say consistent with yours, but that's appealing or that jives with yeah. your way of looking at the world. Yeah. So how you were going to say something, but we should start thinking about wrapping this up because we've been no, going for a long time. No, I actually time. wasn't. I was just going to say, I agree okay. with everything Tim said. So, then if, by the way, side note from earlier, that light from going from light to light thing. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about McCarthy is the way these little things come back later. And I'm going to, I'm going to claim that I think he did this on purpose. When he gets to the judge's house, he makes a point to tell us that there's a light on in the window. When he gets to Rollins house, he makes a point to tell us there's a light on in the window. And I wow. think that those are. David, you important. have a really good eye for those, for like precise imagery. You, you, you always see things that I never see. And then you bring them up. And I'm like, oh yeah, how did I miss that? Most of the time, I think I'm probably just seeing something that, here's the thing. If I am making that up and he didn't mean it that way. I don't think that makes me wrong. <laughs> because, it, at least it creates an atmosphere. Because I think that sometimes writers also do things though. There's an atmosphere, but I think there's also a sense that writers do things subconsciously that like are there, uh, when you are so engrossed, so connected to your story and to what you're trying to say, I think that authors, sometimes things happen. There's a consistency in a work because there's a mm. consistency in an author's soul that they can't always name. And so even mm-hmm. if he was like, oh yeah, I didn't notice that. I still think my argument still holds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we, we got to talk about the ending because if it's true, we've got a character. One of you said this, and I can't remember which one. We've got a character who's trying to navigate this world. I think he is a character who has not hardened himself, mm-hmm. which is why he doesn't kill to your point earlier, Tim. That's why he doesn't kill the guy. Mm-hmm. He has not hardened himself to the See, phrase that, use to the word of God to use that phrase again. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the book, um, where does he stand? This, the, on page 301, he's at the funeral 
for um um what's her name the woman who had worked for the family and oh um um what is her name it's not anna is it well i don't remember what her name was yeah. but she's at the funeral yeah. and it says he turned and put on his hat and turned his wet face to the wind and for a moment he held out his hands as if to steady himself or as if to bless the ground there, or perhaps as if to slow the world that was rushing away and seemed to care nothing for the old or the young or the rich or the poor, or dark or pale or he or she, nothing for their struggles, nothing for their names, nothing for the living or the dead. We have this image here of the funeral, the world, is the world spins on. And the fact that the world is going to go on despite all that's happened to him, despite the people around him dying, it, that feels harsh. He, it says he seems this seems to be a harshness to that and yet the world spins on and then we get a break and it says in four days riding he crosses the pecos and we get to the end of the book two last paragraphs and i feel like we need to at least discuss what's going on in, in these last paragraphs Wait, you want to read those paragraphs david sure it's 301 and 302 in four days riding, he crossed the Pecos at Iran, Texas, and rode up out of the river breaks where the pump jacks in the Yates field ranged against the skyline, rose and dipped like mechanical birds. Like great primitive birds welded up out of iron by hearsay in a land perhaps where such birds once had been. At that time, there were still Indians camped, out, camped on the western plains, and late in the day he passed in his riding a scattered group of their wickiups propped upon that scoured and trembling waste. They were perhaps a quarter mile to the north, just huts made from poles and brush with a few goat hides draped across them. The Indians stood watching him. He could see that none of them spoke among themselves or commented on his riding, on his riding there, nor did they raise a hand in greeting or call out to him. They had no curiosity about him at all, as if they knew all that, all that they needed to know. They stood and watched him pass and watched him vanish upon that landscape solely because he was passing solely because he would vanish. The desert he rode was red, and red the dust he raised, the small dust that powdered the, the legs of the horse he rode, the horse he led. In the evening, a wind came up and reddened all the sky before him. There were a few cattle in that country because it was barren country indeed, yet he came at evening upon a solitary bull rolling in the dust against the blood-red sunset like an animal in sacrificial torment. The blood-red dust blew down out of the sun. He touched the horse with his heels and rode on. He rode with the sun coppering his face and the red wind blowing out of the west across the evening land, and the small desert birds flew chittering among the dry bracken, and horse and rider and horse passed on, and their long shadows passed in tandem, like the shadow of a single being, passed and paled into the darkening land, the world to come. Mac. So I want to read the first couple sentences of the book again. The candle flame and the image of the candle flame caught in the pier glass, pyre glass twisted and righted when he entered the hall and again when he shut the door. So he's at this funeral. It's when he sees his grandfather in the, so it's at the beginning, it's the grandfather at the funeral and the candle flame and the image of the candle flame caught in the pyre glass, twisted and righted when he entered the door again, the hall. And again, when he shut the door and at the, at the end, he's just left the funeral of this woman who took care of them. 
And it says that the, sh the shadows of the horses pass in tandem like the shadow of a single being passed and paled into the darkening land. And that suggests to me the, the notion of flickering. So we, we have this idea of, you know, flickering candles, flickering lights, shadows, all these things. I mean, it even says in the first line, the candle flame and the image of the candle flame. So there's this idea of shadows in both cases. Uh, the beginning, the first line and the last line. First sentence, last sentence. I guess it's not literally the last line. How do you read these these last paragraphs, this recurring image, given everything else that we've talked about in this book? Well, and on page five, we have an almost identical sentence to what to the last paragraph of the novel. He rode with the sun coppering his face and the red wind blowing out of the west. He turned south along the old war trail and he rode out to the crest of a low rise, dismounted and dropped. So we, we do have mm -hmm. a, a similar language. It's obviously a, a kind of a recall. The end is a recall of the beginning, right? We are intended to think of him as coming back, arriving at the end. And it is similar to the beginning, right? It has this, this kind of trajectory, a circular form, and which goes back to the question that you, you brought up earlier, which is how has he changed throughout the novel when he arrives at kind of this new, this at, at the beginning of the novel, he's 16, he's orphaned here uh, by his grandfather and he's left out of his land. His mother has abandoned him. His father doesn't have the resources to parent him and to be a present father in his life. Um, and so he sets out on this journey south and all of these things happen to him. And at the end of the novel, he arrives back where he began kind of yet through, he's gone through yet another orphanhood. Right. And, um, and he is now solitary. He's gone from boy to man and he's arrived at the beginning and knows himself now in a new way um, and perhaps has gained resources for a solitary, an, an, now his more solitary journey that he's about to go on again. I'm so glad you mentioned page five mm -hmm. because I marked up, I hadn't thought of this until you just started reading that because, whoa, okay. So he, he's talking about all these directions that he goes in page five. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he turns south along the old war trail and it even talks about the wind. So in the evening, he saddled his horse and rode out west from the house. This is on page five. The wind was much abated and it was very cold and the sun sat blood, blood red, red and elliptic under the reefs of blood red blood cloud. Red. He rode where he would always choose to ride out where the, he, I love that. Like he always went this direction, right? But then at the end of the section, he goes south. So he rode where he would always choose to ride out where the Western fork of the old Comanche road coming down out of the Kiowa country to the north passed through the westernmost section of the ranch. And you can see the faint trace of it bearing south over the low prairie that lay between the north and middle forks of the river. The ancient road was shaped before him in the rose and canted light like a dream of the past. Um, and then it, where the painted ponies and the riders of that lost nation came out of the north with their faces chalked and their long hair plaited. When the wind was in the north, you could hear them, the horses and the breath of the horses and the hooves. And he goes on about, remember that image of the, 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 the young boys naked and the, on the wild horses and all this like ancient Indian imagery. And at the end here, it has the Indians watching him go. They're just sitting there watching him silently. Um, 
I didn't even, I thought about the little damage, the, the candle like image, the flickering light image, but I didn't think, I didn't remember going back quite that far. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, and he has the thesis of, or, uh, no, I don't want to say thesis. That's too strong of a word. He has yet another reference on page five to the conclusion that our La Duena comes to uh, in the section we talked about last week when he says in the middle of the paragraph, the long paragraph on page five, he says, uh, hold on, let me find it's in the really long sentence. Let me find a place where I can begin it. Um, he's describing the Indians going South, each armed for war, which was their life, and the women and children and women with children at their breasts, all of them pledged in blood and redeemable in blood only. And we have this blood-soaked landscape. Everything's red, blood red. The dust is blood red. The wind is red. The sunset is red, all of it. And then you have the people who must pay for their lives with their own blood. And that is that that's the the entire kind of arc of the novel is uh, bookended, I guess, by um, by this by by these images, hmm. blood soaked landscape and a man alone, a solitary man going south. But then at the end, it doesn't tell us which direction he leaves, which I, mm-hmm. I love because it's a, it, at the beginning of the book, it, he, we, we talked about how he was always going to go to Mexico and he turned south along the old war trail and how little did he know that that was what was actually going to happen. But then at the yeah, end of right. the book, it doesn't say which direction he goes. And I love that the stasis of that. It said he rides off and he's riding the way he always went before, but it never tells us which way he turns. So we don't really, you know... Presumably, he goes north or yeah, anywhere but back where, where he came he's from. Going, right? But that's—I love the way that McCarthy offers that bit of stasis. But the bull, Tim, explain the bull. I Man, I don't know. It's such a stark vision, right? I mean, it's just—you can see it, almost like an icon. It's the um, sacrifice. It's the blood sacrifice. Yeah. Of of. Go on. Well, certainly, Old Testament. It's like there's a. Like everything has to be paid for in blood. I said earlier that that's a thesis statement. And then I said, that's too strong. Maybe it's not. I think that that is part of this novel, that everything is paid for in blood and you might not get to keep it even if you pay for it. But Mm. you can still move from pools of light to pools of light. The world is a... Yeah, it's it doesn't have... The world is a violent place that requires a sacrifice. Um, and we all have to pay for what we, we, we can't just take what we want. We have to pay for it somehow. And, and there's that idea of the blood sacrifice, um, that is required of us in our human journey. Um, mm. and as the, as, as La Duena claims, the, the Mexicans are just more honest about it. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think. I think that that takes us back to questions of justice too. Like, right. and the idea Agreed. that every decision you make is going to lead to something mm-hmm. like there's, there is a consequence for every, whether you turn South, North, East or West. I did not, I did this with my fingers and I did, I was like pointing as I was saying South, North, East and West. I did like the, not one of the times that I actually pointed direction. <laughs> what I was saying, right. Whether you turn South, North, East or West, the adventure that you take is going to have a consequence based on that turning. 
Right. And again, the question of with every Cormac McCarthy novel I've ever read, which you guys have read more than I have, but the the idea of doing following that moral compass will cost you everything. It will cost you your desire, the desire of your heart. You will lose it. Will it still be worth it? And I think he always seems to answer the question with, yes, it was worth it. Like you don't get to the end of this novel and think John Grady Cole sure screwed that up, right? Like you're like, he did everything he had to do. He did the right thing every time. And when he made a mistake, he paid for it. And so it's very satisfying and it has this sense of justice to it, internal justice and cohesion to it. Um, And like like Cormac McCarthy set the terms and he created it at the center, a a hero who more than rose to the occasion, but he still he still paid for it. He still suffered very greatly. Um, And and yet we're left being thinking, I want to be like that guy. And so I think to your point, Tim, there is this internal truth to it that's so compelling, but it's still a bit mysterious to try to tease it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We should wrap this up. It's been a very long episode. Tim, unless Heidi fights you for it, I'm going to give you the last word here. Last word belongs to you. You've read it the most and it's absolutely one of your hard books. I'm afraid that anything I say will be a trite attempt to kind of summarize all of my feelings about this book. And I would fail at that. I, my last word would be keep reading. I think that the remaining two books of the border trilogy are, they're excellent. They're different than this mm-hmm. book, but I think that the themes that were articulated in this book are articulated in the next two books in ways that, oh man, they're just incredible. The Crossing is such a beautiful book and it's, a, it's bewildering in a way that this book for me is not. There's all sorts of questions at the end of All the Pretty Horses, mm-hmm. um, but I think the questions are even bigger at the end of The Crossing. And I do think there's more, I think that the conclusion of the trilogy for me, it's, it's, I'm going to warn you, it ain't a, it ain't an up ending, but it's a very satisfying ending. And I think a lot of the spiritual questions, and I don't want to say religious for the reasons that we've talked about on this podcast, but some of the spiritual questions that are raised in this book, I think they do, they are addressed by the third and the second and third book. Hmm. I think these are books that are going to, I mean, I I, I genuinely believe in 200 years, these are books that people will still read. Absolutely. Um, And I came to this reading. I came to the conclusion that this book is for late 20th century American lit. What Brideshead Revisited was for its era. That'll have to, that's a different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thesis that I refuse to defend. <laughs> Undefended. It would be a fun one for you to defend. That'd be a fun one for yeah. you to defend. Um, we don't have time for that, though. This is fun. This I, is really fun. Cormac McCarthy gets this recording hour and 40-minute episodes. <laughs> Thanks for including me, guys. This is so great. Yeah, was it, was it bearable? We could have it I no other way, it. Heidi. Are you kidding? I loved it. I loved it. I can't wait well, to do another ne- book like this. 
our next book is going to be Zora Neale Hurston's That Eyes Were Watching God. So we'll do the Q&A next week. And then I guess that takes us to the first, the last week of July will be our first foray into that book. So we'll do the first couple of chapters. I think it's the first, I think it's 50 pages or roughly 50 pages. Uh, we'll post the schedule again. I think it should be up on the Facebook group and on the um, newsletter page, but we'll post it again. So yeah, a couple of weeks to, to get started on that while we do the Q&A next week. Uh, and again, you can send questions to David at goldberrybooks.com or you can post it uh, on your question on the thread on Facebook. Hey, Heidi, you want to be in charge of posting that thread? I really do. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for saving me. Yes. From forgetting that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, this was a great time. Tim, do you want to add anything else? Just, I want to give you a chance. No, I'm great. Okay. Heidi, anything? No, I'm good. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>